Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that uh, you would speak to us uh, in our hearts that uh, as we sang, uh, our hearts might be changed within, that we might love you more uh, and love our neighbour more too. Uh, Father, that's why we seek to hear your voice and that we might bring greater honour to you in our lives. So speak, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I always think it would be a good exercise to uh, go through the songs after the service um, sometime in the week. You can find them all on the, on the internet. And just see how many connections you can make between the songs and between everything else that's in the service. Uh, James has made it very easy for you this morning. Uh, so if, if what I'm about to say makes no sense... All you need to do is to go back to all the songs and make all the connections and you'll understand, I think, uh, what these verses uh, are about. I don't think I've ever got so excited about Christmas as I have been this week as I've been, uh, as I've been thinking about and working on this passage from the end of Malachi. Uh, it's going to help you to have it open. It's page 962. And there's a sermon outline as well, if you like. But I've, got, I've found myself getting really excited about Christmas. Um, it may disappoint you. Uh, it hasn't been the aspects of presents or uh, food uh, or free time, all of which I love about Christmas. For me, for me, free time starts just that tiny bit later than for some of you, I guess, uh, at Christmas. Uh, but I've been very excited because of two tiny words in the last verse of the Old Testament, or else, Uh, verse 6b, somewhere in the middle of verse 6, or else. That's how uh, the book of Malachi ends, we'll get to that, you'll hopefully uh, see why I found those two little words so exciting. Uh, But Malachi starts with the statements from the Lord saying to his people, I have loved you. We've seen this repeatedly as we've gone through the book. The people, of course, ask, how have you loved us? And we've seen lots of symptoms of God's people not knowing how God has loved them. Uh, right through the book, the prophet will make a statement, this is the case, and the, the people will go, how's that the case? And they've all been symptoms of not knowing and living in and enjoying the love that God has shown us. Love that God has shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. They're blind to it. They keep asking, how? How's that the case? See, we don't easily see ourselves. God speaks into our darkness and misunderstanding of ourselves. And that's not often comfortable, but it is always good for us. And that's that's what Malachi has been doing. And as we come to chapter 3, verse 13, 
uh, we see the worst symptom, I think, that we've come across of not knowing how God has loved us. The worst symptom of that. There have been loads right through. But here's the worst. Um, And it is to say that we would be better off not following God. Look at verse 13. You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you that can't see? So God speaks so that we can see ourselves. You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by following all his commands? Evildoers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Be better off not following God, God's people say. It's pointless to serve him. Obeying his word doesn't get me anywhere. In fact, doing the opposite would be better for me, like the evildoers, they seem to prosper. And nothing bad happens if you put God to the test. If you, if you deliberately kind of disobey him to see what he'll do, he does nothing anyway. So what's the harm? Uh, last week we were, in va- we were actually invited, in verse 10, to test God. But last week we were invited to test God by doing what is good and see what he'll do if you do what is good. Here, this is about testing God by doing evil. A very different thing. Ah, I can do that because God won't do anything anyway, they say. Why is this the worst symptom? Well, if we look a little closer, it is astonishingly self-centered, isn't it? The worst symptom of not knowing how God has loved us is self-centeredness. See, the whole idea driving these verses is that God should be serving me. He should be serving me on my terms so that I get where I want to get. And life, my life, is like I want my life to be. And if God's not delivering that for me, if God is not being my servant on my terms... Well, it's futile. I'll give up on him. It's astonishingly self-centered in its approach. And so there is inevitably an envy which comes with it, an envy of others which grows out of this self-centeredness. Because God's people here look around And they see loads of people who disregard God and they're getting what they want. They seem to be doing okay. They seem to be prospering. And um, the people look at those who disregard God and they say, they've got what I want. And so out of that self-centeredness, that actually God should be serving me, giving me what I want... 
And envy grows because they see those who disregard God as getting what they want. Self-centeredness, envy and arrogance. There is always an arrogance that grows out of self-centeredness. What God has commanded doesn't work, the people say. So I'd be better off ignoring God and finding my own way. Writing my own law. Forming my own commands. Calling the shots on my terms. I think we have to say that if God is real, that is somewhat arrogant (laughs) to say that we might be able to work out how to live better than he can. But because it doesn't take a genius to see that that's the very essence, the very heart of what we mean when we talk about sin. That, That we would be better off without God, not serving him, not obeying him. Remember, it's like the Garden of Eden. You'll be much better off if you eat that fruit. Simple as that. Well, how do we get so self-centered? How do do these, I don't, I mean, when when I prepare passages like this and I recognize what I'm describing in myself, I just assume that you're going to recognize in yourselves the same kind of essence of sin and the same same temptations and weaknesses so I'm not going to outline them all for you um, but we do sometimes think this don't we is it worth following God Doesn't the, don't the evil people seem to prosper they seem to have better lives than I do yeah quite right but how do we get so skewed in our thinking how do we get so self-centered why do we have this envy and then, and, then, and then practice this arrogance? Surely it's only if we've forgotten or only if we don't know how God has loved us. If you think about the, 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 the self-centeredness, in Malachi's language, that's back in chapter 3, verse 10, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So this is the giving, uh, he's talking about finances and money here. But you can broaden the principle, bring your whole self as an offering to God. So God-centeredness, not self-centeredness. Bring your whole self, test me in this and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That's not self-centeredness. Jesus puts it uh, this way, for whoever wants to save their life, that self-centered approach to getting what what, what you want, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, whoever offers their whole self, And for the gospel, we'll save it. Right back at the beginning, if you think about envy, God's first answer to that question about how have have you loved us, 
when the people ask him, have you loved us? He basically says, well, why would you be envious of Esau? Remember that Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated? Why would you be envious of Esau? They may build, but I'll demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. Why would you ever be envious of evildoers and those who ignore God if you know God's love for you? Um, John puts it this way, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. How how could we ever get to a position of envy for, for those who don't know God's love if we know his love? Um, In uh, in terms of arrogance, uh, Malachi's told this one story, hasn't he, of love, uh, of the love of God. We saw it last week, chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So I'm the Lord who loves you, and I do not change. So you're not destroyed, but ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. See, there's no room for arrogance amongst those who know that God has loved them because the only reason that we still survive is because of God's love, because we know our own sin. All God's people have ever contributed is to turn away from his decrees and not keep them. That's our contribution. And yet we're not destroyed because the Lord loves us And he does not change. It's very odd for us to be arrogant people if that's the one story. So as soon as we turn our our hearts and our minds towards the cross and the death of the Lord Jesus, as soon as we see how God has loved us despite our sin. The Son of God has loved me, Paul says, and he gave himself for me. As soon as we turn our hearts and minds towards his love, and we think about it and and try and understand it more and grow in it, then then my little self-centered ideas of how God should be serving me are just blown away, aren't they? If God has truly loved me like that, my little self-centered ideas of what life should be like are just blown away. And why would, ever, why would I ever be envious of somebody, or why would I ever be envious of being without that love? Why would I want to go there? Rather, I'm concerned for people who are outside that love to come and find it in the Lord Jesus. And why would I do anything but humble my heart before him and obey him, the one who gave himself for me? The worst symptoms 
of not knowing how God has loved us. So let's press on in knowing how God has loved us. If you ever think that the life which Christ gives is somehow uh, not what it should be, go back to the death of the Lord Jesus for you. Think on what he has achieved there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And then reassess any self-centeredness, any envy or any arrogance that might remain in us. Well, verse 16 of chapter 3 is beautiful. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. For all the, all the complaints against God's people in Malachi, for all the exposure of where they've fallen short, those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. Everything that Malachi has been preaching for. The prophets are always warning us. But a warning is also an invitation. Malachi has been preaching these warnings, but he's been wanting people to return to the Lord. And here for the first time, we see, yes, there were some, a remnant is the word we use, there were some who listened, and they saw themselves in everything that Malachi was warning against, and they feared the Lord, they turned and they feared the Lord, and the Lord heard. This is the only effective antidote to the problem. Firstly, fear. And we can think of this positively and negatively. Fear of the Lord. Yes, you do not want to be on the wrong side of this Lord, of this God. We'll see that in the coming verses. You do not want to be on the wrong side of him. But positively, if we have truly been loved, as we say we have, by the Lord Jesus, who who came and gave himself for us, then surely we must bow the knee and admit that whatever he says goes. If that's how we've been loved then we must bow to him and admit that whatever he says goes because he's the one who loves us. He's the one who knows what is best for us. And that's what's happening to these people here. They feared the Lord. I don't want to be on the wrong side of him, but now I'm beginning to understand how he has loved me. So I will submit to him and I'll be led by him and I'll deny myself and follow him. And there's a togetherness about this. 
They talked with each other. It's a community of people. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian uh, in the Bible. We are together in community, in church, together fearing the Lord. And the Lord listened and heard. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and you will receive. The Lord listened and heard. And then this book gets written. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. It's a book of remembrance. Uh, That means that there's going to have to be a waiting for these people. It's written in his presence. That's the presence of the Lord. So the Lord knows the names in the book. And we're being told that there's a a day is coming when we will look back when he will look back and names will be remembered by God on that day that is coming. That means for the people that they will be waiting for whatever it is that's coming. But there's an assurance, there's a promise that they belong to God. They will be remembered as those who feared and honoured the Lord. I wonder if you recognise this. This is the Christian life. We are those who fear God, we know his love, together, and our names are written in what becomes called the Lamb's Book of Life, waiting for him until he comes. And that day will come, verse 17, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. There's only two kinds of people the Bible recognises. Those who serve God, as it's put in verse 18, those who serve God and those who don't. And there's a great difference between those two people. Now, in our, while we're waiting, we might get really confused and think, oh, I'd actually like to be one of those. I'm envious of them. Or we might get confused now, but on the day when God acts, there will be no confusion whatsoever. An immeasurable difference will be revealed on that day. There's a little table to fill in. I don't know how this will work, so I just... Oh, that's not too bad. I just lifted it out of the word processor and it was all the wrong... Anyway, um, there we go. Uh, if you go through these verses from verse 17 to verse 3 of chapter 4 and just make a list of those things that the righteous who serve the Lord receive, those who fear the Lord, who know their sin but know his love, and therefore are counted righteous and serve him, compared to the wicked who do not, who deliberately ignore and disobey his commands 
however life might be for them now, if you go through these verses, well, in the left-hand column you get this. On that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, here's the distinction, they will be, those who fear and honour him, they will be my treasured possession. That's rich language from Exodus chapter 19. At Mount Sinai, God's own people, chosen and kept by him, his treasured possession. How do you fancy being treasured by the God of heaven and earth? Huh? That's the promise. We're spared the judgment. We know we're spared. The Lord Jesus bore it for us. His compassion is poured out on us. The Son of Righteousness rises with healing in His wings. The Lord Jesus, that bright, shining Son of Righteousness, risen for our healing. You remember in Isaiah 53, by His wounds you are healed. He rises with healing in His wings. The forgiveness of sins. Eternal life. Yes, achieved at the cross, but that distinction, that difference between those who serve and those who don't, that will be fully seen on the day of judgment. The full effects of the cross seen there. Life and joy. I assume that's what's referred to by uh, frolicking, well-fed calves. Uh, I've interpreted that as life and joy. Uh, And then reigning. Remember the famous phrase that the, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Speaking of the Lord Jesus. Well, that's the image in verse uh, 3. It's difficult language, but the righteous will trample the wicked. A footstool for your feet. The reigning victorious people of God, where evil will have no place anymore. There are simply two ways to live. It might look all mixed and we might get envious and so on in this era, but when the Lord Jesus returns, the difference will be immeasurable and clear. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard, and their names, our names, will be remembered on the day of judgment because of the Lord Jesus and his love for us. The other side of the table is sobering. The imagery of fire and destruction the immeasurable difference that making that following Christ makes. Two ways to live, two clear outcomes. But remember it's a warning. And why does a prophet priest a warn preach a warning? 
A prophet preaches a warning because he wants to invite you to God's blessing. So if you fear that you might be on the wrong side of this table, you have time. Malachi has said, hasn't he, or the Lord has said through Malachi, return to me and I will return to you. And then you could know yourself as a treasured possession of the God of heaven. Do not delay. We don't know when that day will be. But it is a day when the Lord will come and will act. And so the final three verses of the Old Testament, the last revelation of God before the New Testament begins. And it is a brilliant ending to the Old Testament. The last thing that God says in the Old Testament. It's a hope. It's something we're waiting for. It's the only hope that we have. Two commands in these verses. The first one in verse 4, remember. The only hope comes by remembering. What do we remember? We remember Moses. Well, if you remember Moses and the whole Old Testament, and the whole Old Covenant, if you remember Moses, where does that leave you? Where does it leave you if you remember Moses? Well, it leaves you with two things, I think. Firstly, that God is good and he loves you. Malachi kind of expects us to know that, even if we kind of get all confused about it. God loves you, but you have never escaped your sin. That's where we get to if we remember Moses. God loves you, but you've never managed to escape your sin. It's that same one story, isn't it? Either Lord don't change, I love you, so you, you still, you, you've not been destroyed. But ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. That's where Moses leaves us. And the problem with that is that Moses then says, well, if you never escape your sin, you face utter destruction. Or, well, you can see it at the end of verse 6, can't you? I will come and strike the land with total destruction. That's how this works. Remember Moses. Okay, God loves me. I've never escaped my sin. Utter destruction under the covenant of Moses. Or else, those two words proceed, don't they? I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So there's something in verse 5 and the first part of 6, which means God can say, yeah, remember Moses, God loves you, you've never escaped your sin, you'll be totally destroyed. But he says, no, see something in between or else you will be totally destroyed. So the Old Testament ends telling us to look for that other thing. 
Our only hope comes by remembering, but also by seeing. See, verse 5, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Look at, Malachi says, for your only hope. Because before the day God acts, before that day, Elijah must come. And hearts will be changed. And if that doesn't happen, then it is only destruction that lies ahead. If Elijah doesn't come, there is no salvation. There is no treasured possession. There is no distinction between the righteous and the wicked because there are only the wicked. There's only one column of that table, the right-hand column, if Elijah doesn't come. I'll send my prophet Elijah or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. See, if we really remember Moses, then we will be looking out for all we are worth for Elijah. Because he is our only hope. Now the disciples asked Jesus about this in Matthew chapter 17. And Jesus says, Elijah has already come. And the disciples understand that Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist must come, Malachi says in effect. So at the end of the the Old Testament, we're told to see. See something that's coming. And the people were straining their eyes for 400 years looking for this. They need Elijah to come. Because, and Elijah does turn up. John the Baptist. But what does John the Baptist do? Well, basically the only thing John the Baptist does is point people to Jesus. The Lord Jesus is that bright, shining sun of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. Why do you think the angels get so excited at the beginning of the New Testament? Because what everybody has been straining to see for 400 years has arrived. That's what excited me about Christmas. That I just saw it clearly like that again. That the only hope of avoiding complete destruction has arrived with the Lord Jesus. So repent and believe the good news this Christmas. Bin self-centeredness. Forget about envying anyone. Stop being arrogant. Enjoy the love of God. Fear and serve Him. Let's stand to sing.